Welcome, viewers and listeners, to this episode of the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Today, we've put together a monster mashup, a science fiction double feature, if you will, to dive in and explore the quest for secret and forbidden knowledge. Yes, there is a light over at the Frankenstein place, but I'm not talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Tonight, we will be reviewing the 1931 horror masterpiece Frankenstein, and we will be pairing it like a fine Cote de Nuit burgundy and the big greasy Philly cheesesteak with Mel Brooks's 1974 classic, Young Frankenstein. Now, if you've been a fan of the show for any length of time, you'll know that this isn't our standard methodology. The vast majority of our roundtable discussions focus on a single film, except for a few instances where we do a direct comparison between an original film and its newer remake. However, in this particular case, there is a unique relationship between Frankenstein and Young Frankenstein that warrants discussion above and beyond what you might uncover when talking about either of them separately. Frankenstein, directed by James Whale and featuring an iconic performance by the legendary Boris Karloff, is loosely based on a book by the same name uh, by Mary Shelley, which was published in 1818. The film focuses on the story of Henry Frankenstein, an obsessed scientist who has all but abandoned his friends, family, and fiance Elizabeth in pursuit of his mysterious experiments. Eventually, Henry's friend Victor goes to visit him along with Elizabeth and one of Henry's old professors, but reluctantly, Henry allows him to come into his lab where he reveals that he has built a human body that he believes he can bring back to life using a frequency of radiation above ultraviolet, truly the Bruce Banner of his time. Henry's experiments turn out to be successful. However, his creation is nonverbal with an extreme fear of fire and violent tendencies, presumably because his assistant Fritz uh, brings back an abnormal brain to be placed into the body before it's reanimated. It's clear through Karloff's performance that this reanimated being is experiencing existential distress. He's begging for identity and guidance, and it is taught through the reactions of the people around it that it is a monster. The monster escapes the lab and accidentally kills a child, and because of this, the villagers chase it into a windmill where it attacks Henry, but is eventually, presumably, burned to death. Now, of course, there are some um, <clears throat> sequels and so on and so forth, but that's not really relevant for this this version of the film. Uh, the reason that young Frankenstein, though, is such a perfect foil for this is because Frederick Frankenstein, Henry's descendant, seems cursed to follow in Henry's footsteps. There is a notably heavy-handed emphasis on destiny throughout young Frankenstein, and the story story is nearly identical, but at the end we get a complete subversion of the story in the 1931 film, and in Young Frankenstein, Frederick is able to save the monster by taking personal, moral responsibility for his creation and sacrifice half of his own brain to turn the monster into a fully functioning person. Now, I absolutely love this because the resolution here makes for, for what I see as the major thematic flaws and shortcomings of Frankenstein, and I can't wait to talk about why that is, but... Before I do, I want to go ahead and hand it over to my co-hosts, uh, Jim and Shara, who for their final, or excuse me, not for their final thoughts, but for their initial thoughts on the two films and the overarching tale of the Frankenstein family. So what do you guys think? Initial thoughts on uh, Frankenstein or Young Frankenstein or the overarching story? What do we got? Well, I've actually always kind of disliked the uh, Frankenstein story. Uh, I think it's a product of its time in a lot of ways. But um, as the story reads, it's relatively anti-science, right? Um, even in the beginning of the 1931 version, we get this character who sort of comes out on a stage, which we could talk about why that fits within the film traditions of the time. Uh, but nevertheless, a character comes out on the stage and basically says, this is a story about a man who has defied God 
and as a result, uh, presumably would meet his end as a result of, quote unquote, defying God. And it sort of sets up this dichotomy as a like science on the one hand and faith and religion on the other hand. And of course, the story ends up proving well, ends up supporting the idea that faith and religion is superior and that the quote unquote natural order of things that is one that is dictated by uh, God or the great chain of being is the nat- is the order that at the end of the film is is upheld um that has always spoken to me as kind of an anti-science message and one that I'm not particularly on board with so I've never really liked the Frankenstein story in all of its iterations for that reason nevertheless I do think that uh there are elements of both of these films that are really good and elements of both of these films that um, I, I I can sort of glom onto from a more technical standpoint than from a ideological standpoint. I think that it's unfair to a movie to say, oh, this is a one star movie just because it's it uh, purports an ideology with which I disagree. I think that's unfair to the movie and unfair to the creators and unfair to the fans of the film. Um, so I'm not willing to do that with Frankenstein or Young Frankenstein. But as a whole, and and certainly as we're talking about the philosophy of these films, I do think we have to to talk about how the basic story of these films uh, relate to a anti-science position. So I would I would like to uh, throw in on this. Uh, first off, the word scientist didn't even come about before the story was written. Uh, there was no such thing as a scientist uh, when Mary Shelley wrote this story. Um, what was actually a thing that was occurring was a thing called galvanism. I don't know if you guys have studied up on galvanism. It's a very strange thing that people were working on. Uh, basically, someone was taking severed frogs' legs and electrifying them and showing how their muscles would move once they've been severed and uh, had the idea that that's really what we're made of, is electrical uh stuff inside of us like if you cut off a finger there's some electricity there you know not not like laser beams shooting out of us but uh like some electricity that's shooting through our bodies that makes us alive and this was a huge thing that they were they were working on at this time in fact um a couple of years before uh mary shelley wrote the story there was a doctor who (laughs) took this guy who was hung for murdering his uh child and wife uh, and electrified his head, which they had also done to cow's heads before this. And, you know, there's some winking and blinking and, and some spasming of their faces. And uh, this was a thing that was very horrific to people. They saw this and they were like, that's fucking horrifying. Like, ew. <laughs> like the fact that you can make someone's head do that after they're already dead um and a lot of these horrifying things that happen to us even after death uh have been shown to happen with certain diseases now um certain kinds of malaria have made dead creatures um jerk and run about even though they're already dead it it's horrifying and so the reason why it's horrifying is when are we dead what is dead and I I think that was what Mary Shelley was 
grasping onto. I think that was the thing that was really um, part of her. That's kind of scary. When are we dead? What is dead? Can we electrify a body and then be back to life? Would we be who we are? Which honestly, Stephen King definitely uh, kind of borrowed from with Pet Cemetery, right? Like, what is dead? Is dead better? <laughs> you know, it, it's it's kind of an old story, right? But Mary Shelley definitely uh, is a product of her time with that form of storytelling and that form of horror. In a way, she kind of started that horror, took doctors' experiments and turned it into a story that could scare people. I, I have heard of what you're talking about. And you know, I'm trying to think back into my my college years because I'm sure we talked about that kind of stuff in like some of the neuro classes that we had. Um, but I, 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 I want to make a distinction here really quickly uh, between the, the Mary Shelley original story in the 1931 movie the, uh, of Frankenstein, because I think one of those has a little bit of a different focus on this idea of kind of like weird, creepy secret knowledge than the other one. So in Shelley's book, I think it's really interesting to note that the the experiment Frankenstein's monster is actually uh, worlds different than the one that we see in Boris Karlov's interpretation. For instance, it's I think the experiment ends up being more successful. So um, one really good example of that is that, you know, partway through the book, we see the, the monster eloquent and rational making a case to Dr. Frankenstein to create a partner for him so that he won't be quite as lonely. And so like there's this level of intelligence there in this this personhood that exists. And the reason that the monster was ostracized wasn't so much that it, it seemed monstrous, right? But just that Dr. Frankenstein was sort of disgusted at what he did and didn't really kind of like take responsibility for his creation. It seems like he was just taking that knowledge and applying it just for its own sake. Whereas in the movie, in the 1931 version, we see, you know, yes, the monster is nonverbal. It's sort of like dragging around. It seems sort of like halfway there. It's, it's disgusting looking, you know, it looks green. It's huge. Um, and it has like these sort of like primal re reactions to fire, um, and responds violently to these stimuli. And, the message that I think we get that's different between these two different stories is that in Mary Shelley's story, it seems like, yes, you know, it's, it's definitely that Promethean tale of, you know, someone brings down this light, this fire to humanity and is punished and, you know, tormented for that gift of knowledge. Um, but there's definitely more of this focus on, well, the reason that Dr. Frankenstein is tortured is because he failed to take responsibility for his creation. Whereas in the movie, it's just more about this God story. It's like, well, he literally says, I now I know what it's like to be God. And, you know, it seems like he's he's suffering because he went too far and decided to play God. And I think, you know, there's there's a very clear distinction between the main themes that we see in those two different mediums. Yeah, it's almost an Icarus story in the 1931 version, because the 1931 version is all of I mean, I'm going to kind of go back to this point. It's about an anti-science point of view. And, you know, Mary Shelley, uh, you know, she writes uh, Frankenstein origin of species comes out 40 years later. I mean, at the time, it wasn't necessarily science, but it was a sense of um, of, uh, I mean, I think that rather than, uh, galvanism, I think was the, the phrase you used, Shara, is that right? Um, yeah, it, rather than thinking of the, this as galvanism at the time, there were, uh, people called naturalists and those were what our modern day science 
scientists were, the people who were trying to figure out how nature worked. And of course, Darwin does that. And 40 years later with Origin of Species tries to figure out how nature works. And well, I, I just want to point out the Galvanism isn't a, a religion or a viewpoint. It's a, an actual activity of right. putting electrical impulses into meat, essentially, to make it jerk around. Um, and, of course, with our nerve endings, the way that it's uh, intermingled into our flesh, it, it makes it move around. Uh, I guess you would say realistically, it's a, it's a weird puppetry that occurs when we send those electrical impulses into our um, our meat. It doesn't mean that we are sentient though <laughs> like and honestly that's i think what makes it so horrifying but galvanism is just simply thinking that you can bring life to something with electricity um and using electrical impulses into the meat to make it move again um yeah, so yeah. and it's drawing the line on where naturalism, uh, natural experiments should start and, uh, start and stop. Um, the, the original book might work in that way. Um, it's one of the early science fiction books. And, and I think that, well, like a lot of, uh, early science fiction, it's anti-science. Um, in fact, like a lot of present day science fiction, it's anti-science. There's I, it, like if you look at science fiction through this lens, you'd be surprised the number of science fiction films and science fiction stories that are, that are in fact anti-science. Jurassic Park is anti-science. You never thought uh, you uh, shit. Let me let me get the quote right. Um you, you were so obsessed with whether or not you could, you never stopped to think whether or not you should. That is profoundly anti-science. We wouldn't have gone to the moon or we wouldn't have done a whole bunch of scientific uh, uh, scientific feats if if we had thought along those lines. And it's it's all about I mean, we get this very early in the 31 movie where they say, uh, that that playing God is not the thing that man should do, and that that is and and that to my mind is is an ideology and a philosophy that I don't necessarily agree with. Now, should we be ethical about the scientific experiments that we choose to do? Absolutely. Should we think about the type of scientific experiments that we should do? Absolutely. Should we uh should we uh, create life out of dead bodies and brains that we find uh, in a laboratory? Eh, probably not. But uh, if one of these scientific experiments certainly helps to uh, extend the lives of, of, uh, of, of humanity, then I don't, I don't see why that's a bad thing. And I wonder... Uh, what the overall cultural effect of stories like these and and the very idea of playing God works in a uh, in a larger cultural sense. And so for that reason, it, it, you know, I do want to go back to this point that the basic story of Frankenstein is anti-science. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It just means that that's something that I think we have to wrestle with when we're evaluating the 31 movie. 
Um, I think that that's less true of of Young Frankenstein, but I think Young Frankenstein is trying to do vastly different things than the 31 film. Yeah, so actually, if we could talk about that really quickly. So I I did want to pick that not only just for the narrative reasons, but also because I think it's interesting to have kind of it's I'm not even sure if it's like a satire on that idea. Right. So it's like I I agree that there are these like deep um, sort of like anti-science sentiments in in the 31 film. Um, And you kind of see that there because, of course, whenever Frederick sort of goes down that same path, he ends up making a lot of the same mistakes. Um, And not just because like the the film is absolutely inundated with comedy. Obviously, it's a Mel Brooks film. Um, But I think really what they end up doing, I think, is is absolutely profound in that, you know, you, you have him creating this monster just because he can. He finds the notes. He's like, you know, he's reading through this with this fervor and he's like, it just might work. It could work. Like that was his big breakthrough. It's like he's doubting his grandfather this entire time thinking he's a quack, making a mockery of him, trying to distance himself from this name. And then as soon as he finds the research notes, he's completely in because of the possibility that he could have the ability to raise dead tissue. There's no other further like discussion about it. It's like, can he do this? Maybe. Well, wow, that's pretty interesting. Let me go ahead and give this a shot because it might be a huge contribution to the the existing scientific literature or whatever. And of course, so this ends up being like a huge mistake. He also ends up getting an abnormal brain and putting it into the body. So we have this <laughs> nonverbal sort of hulking creature who ends up mistakenly almost hurting a girl just exactly the same way in the United, in the 1931 version. Um, but at the end, instead of the monster being burned to death and attacked by the villagers, we have him saying, well, you know, I need to take responsibility for this kind of like that ethical question, right? It's like, okay, what have I wrought? What have I done? Um, how can I save this being who is clearly undergoing this sort of fear and this existential horror of its own um, instead of me being the monster, which I think there's an argument that that um, depending on the book or the film, it's either Victor or Henry Frankenstein is truly clearly the monster in those stories because of his decisions. You know, Frederick is like, I, I am going to step up and I'm going to be a moral agent and responsible for this and I'm going to sacrifice myself to rectify these mistakes. And so at the end of that movie, I think we get a drastically different message because it's not that we shouldn't make these these attempts at gaining new, almost dangerous, sort of like creepy, mysterious knowledge as long as we're ready to take responsibility for them and take the actions necessary to, you know, uh, recognize the consequences, right? Like, I really think that's the core underlying theme, even though of course it's, you know, it's a comedy movie. It's very funny. If you really dig down into it and how it sort of subverts the Frankenstein story, I think it becomes almost like, yes, science can be dangerous and scary, but if we take responsibility and we do things ethically, we can come up with these sort of like these groundbreaking revolutionary advances in medical science, of course, but in, in all of our generation of knowledge and so on and so forth. Because if you think about this, the fact that he's able to stabilize that experiment, the fact that he's successfully raised a, a, a person, a stable person from nothing, from parts, you then could presume that after that story, he is probably the biggest thing since sliced bread in the scientific community. He's come up with this revolutionary, this huge breakthrough in medical science because he did. He succeeded, right? I mean, like, he doesn't explicitly say that. You don't see him having all of this fame or whatever. But I, I think I think that's the real takeaway there is that, you know, he he didn't make the same mistakes of his grandfather. Therefore, he was able to reap the benefits of his, of his discoveries. I want to agree with what you're saying, but I also want to complicate it a little bit. Um, you're right. I In your reply to 
Young Frankenstein is Young Frankenstein also an anti-science film? I think you you make a good case that it, perhaps it isn't, but you do have the theme of destiny running around in there, and that's not particularly scientific either. Like that's not one of those themes that is particularly resonant within a scientific community, and and that you know. Yes, you're right that uh, the idea that he could actually make this work is part of what motivates him. But then we get a long scene where he's uh, doing this. Gene Wilder is doing Gene Wilder things and screaming out the word destiny. Um, Is he motivated by scientific curiosity or is he motivated by an idea of destiny, which negates the idea like that's not a scientific thing it's more along the lines of a a spiritual thing um a a spiritual motivation and uh so then i wonder just what uh brooks's film's point of view on the relationship to of science and religion and science and fate and science and and the giant so what um, I don't know if that's entirely as as clear as 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 you made it. So. I just want to throw out there. Um, I think that it's not necessarily Brooks's film. I think that this is Gene Wilder's film. In fact, it was his idea when he was on the set of uh, God damn it, what is the name of that movie where they're farting around the campfire? God damn it, I can't. Blazing it. Saddles. Blazing Saddles, thank you. Uh, when they were on the set of Blazing Saddles, Gene Wilder came up with this idea and and ran it past Brooks. Um, so I, I feel like this is a Wilder idea. And I think the reason why it's a Wilder idea and why Brooks attached to himself to it was daddy issues. Daddy issues are implanted so heavily in this. Now, in 1931, it was God. But this has been kind of turned into a dad thing, right? This is his own child. And you see this when they're in the cell and he's like, Oh, you're unloved, honey, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's daddy issues. Okay. So they, they made the understanding that when he was like, I'm a God, that's what dads do when their children are born. They're like, my DNA is superior. I've, formed new life and 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 you'll see a lot of you know dudes react that way you know oh look they have all their fingers and toes i'm obviously far superior and this is also very much ingrained in the uh young frankenstein film this idea of passing on your genes to create a superior ability this is why the uncle had done all these things and no matter how much he tried to be Frankenstein, he's a Frankenstein. Sorry, dude, that's what you are. It's in you. And this isn't faith. This is just your DNA determines a lot about who you are. Um, I had never met my grandfather until I was 18 years old. He had ran off with uh, some young girl before I was born, and we had never met when I was 18, I met him. I look exactly like him. I talk exactly like him. I have very similar political views to him. And when I met him, it was weird. 
It was like looking in a mirror. It was creepy. I was like, no, no, you ran off. You ran away from your family. My mom was messed up because of you. You get out of here. And then I was like, oh, crap, though. I'm so similar to him. Like, I can't escape that. That's not something that can go away. DNA is destiny. And I think that's what they're getting at with young Frankenstein. I don't think it's a, a faith thing. It's it's a you pass on your genes and some similarities gets passed on to you. Um, even if you're an uncle, like I look a lot like my uncle too. <laughs> so I can't escape these things. I don't know. It's I don't see it as a religious passing on. I see it as we pass on our destinies to our children and to our children's children and maybe even to our nieces and nephews and that um, the things that we're working on and the things that we care about can be passed on as a thing that they care about. It's, it's not necessarily destiny as so much as it's obvious. Like this is something that people are pushing you to do. That's why a lot of lawyers will have lawyers and a lot of doctors will have doctors. It's not necessarily that it's in their gene pool necessarily, but it's, there's a lot of things going on there. There's, it's a lot more complicated. And I think young Frankenstein makes fun of that. I think it's, it's a satire of that, that no matter how much you try to be different and try to differentiate yourself as something that's not like your family, you're probably a lot like your family. So I can buy the idea that there are that the when he's screaming destiny in the very Gene Wilder way that Gene Wilder screams destiny, um, I can buy that that has something to do with a familial relationship. Um, and I can even buy that there is a father son relationship that's built between uh Frankenstein the doctor and and Frankenstein's and the Peter Boyle character which I really don't like calling him either the monster or the creature uh either of those don't really seem to fit for me although of course those are the the uh titles He's the that guy that's good in bed. Uh yeah, we'll get to that. I've got <laughs> I got things to say about uh, Mel Brooks's uh, understanding of sexuality a little bit later, but for right now, uh, I yeah, he's there. They, so I I can buy that there's sort of a relationship between a, a father son relationship between um the uh, grandparent I think it was and uh. The, Frankenstein, who we see in the Gene Wilder character, and I can buy that there's a father-son relationship between Gene Wilder's character and Peter Boyle's character. What I have trouble understanding is what coherent thing this film is saying about father-son relationships. And I'm I'm having trouble understanding if you're if you're making the argument, and I'm willing to to go with you in this. Uh, if you're making the argument that this is satirizing something about father and son relationships, I'm happy to to sort of see that. But I'm not I don't understand what the target of the satire is. And I don't know what it's saying in targeting that that satirical relationship. Can you like suss that out for me or? Maybe it's poorly done. I, I don't know. But uh, no, I, I mean, I'm not... I think it's pretty obviously a part of the theme like that. Um, 
you know, his uncle was a particular way, and no matter how much he tried to escape it, uh, even by changing the pronunciation of his name, uh, because he didn't want to be attached to that legacy, and he wanted to make something new of himself, which was the the comedy behind it. And that was actually the way he sold it to Brooks and how Brooks sold it to the... Uh, I can't remember who did it now. Fuck. Doesn't the studio, matter. whoever, yeah. The studio people. Um, basically, the idea was the reason why this is different from all the other remakes of this story is that he doesn't want to be a Frankenstein. He doesn't want to be attached to that. And he's trying to battle against that destiny, against what his DNA has put out for him to be. And that's what was supposed to be comical about it. And that's why everybody was sold on making the film, was this idea of, no, I am Frankenstein. Fine, I'm Igor. You know, it's it's supposed to be funny. It's a denial of your familial roots while still going into who you are based off of your familiar roots. And sometimes things just happen because DNA is pretty strong. I don't know how that that, that, that necessarily is like a hilarious... I can't explain why that's comical, but that's what was sold to Brooks and the uh, people who made the film, and they thought it was funny. And Gene Wilder came up with it, and he's pretty funny. So, yeah, there it is. Uh, I, I can't try to sell to you why that's funny, except for say that that's why it was sold. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to sell it to you. I'm, I'm not trying to make a movie. Uh, but some people thought that was funny. I mean, I, I can definitely see it being thematically relevant here because, like, I mean, in the first one and in Young Frankenstein or in the 1931 Frankenstein and the Young Frankenstein, like, identity, I think, is a, is a huge theme. Um, and even in, like, Mary Shelley's book, right? I mean, there's this whole, this, this like, existential sort of, like, not necessarily, maybe, yeah, maybe, like, existential dread and sort of, like, struggle here because, like, you know, again, the monster comes into being not knowing who the hell it is and then everyone sort of, like, teaches it that it's a monster. Um Dr. Frankenstein sort of like tries to take on the identity of this godlike figure, but is unable to take on the responsibility of a godlike figure. And then Frederick Frankenstein is fighting against his identity as a Frankenstein because of the sins of his father, but then finally has to accept again who he really is, I think, which is, you know, obviously someone who is a lot more like his grandfather than he would like to believe. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, so we have this sort of like shifting identity, people fighting against who they really are, um, people trying to figure out who they are and the conflict that arises because of that. And that I think probably is sort of like how we tie in thematically, like all, all across the Frankenstein sort of like mythology. And then this sort of like point about destiny is that, you know, you have this true identity and then there's this identity that you want to believe that you are. And then eventually there's going to be this reckoning of the two originally with Frankenstein thinking he's a God, but no, he's just kind of like this irresponsible sort of like dude who is not ready to wield the power that he discovered and found for himself. And then in Frederick Frankenstein, when, you know, he wants to be a credible sort of like medical doctor and scientist and be objective in facts and logic and rationality when he actually does have this sort of part of him that wants to reach a little bit farther and reach a little bit too close to the sun. Once again, uh, we have Icarus uh, popping up in in our Frankenstein again. It's apropos. It's a it's a good one. It's a, it's a good tie-in. Yeah, it certainly is, and I think that uh, both 
both all versions of the story um, reach for an Icarus like mythology, basically, that the creation of life outside of the traditional quote unquote naturalistic means is uh, a problem to be solved. Now, in uh, Frankenstein 31, it's solved by murdering the creature, first disavowing the creature, being talked into um, being talked into despising your own creation and then disavowing the creature and then murdering the creature. In Young Frankenstein, it is literally, and this goes to your point, Shera, giving a piece of yourself into the creature that you created, as they do in the uh, the final experiment, so to speak. Um, and I think that those, both of those do relate to an in in any case the lesson of the of these stories is don't do this thing um or if you do this thing it will cost you a piece of yourself um and uh while that has an up ending in young frankenstein it has a somewhat down ending in frankenstein 31 although i think frankenstein 31 doesn't uh the, it doesn't even punish the the good doctor, uh, so to speak, because he probably will be quite all right. The uh, the other guy didn't uh, get in and and steal his girl. Uh, yeah, he fell off of a uh, a windmill, but it looks like he's going to be all right. Um, at the end, he gets married. Everything's going to be fine for him. Um, at the end of Young Frankenstein, he apparently has a bigger penis. Um, those are like it's or just knows how to use it better. We don't know exactly what Brooks is trying to get out there. I it makes it makes women sing. I don't understand. I don't. It's yeah, weird. isn't that isn't that exactly how that works, Shayra? That uh, as soon as you uh, as soon as you, you enter get... and oh! <laughs> no. I'm surprised you were able to do that just on command here. I didn't know that that was... Uh... I used to sing on stage. What can I say? Right. <laughs> I can't do it anymore, though. <laughs> but, no, it is it is very... Both of them end dumb. And, um, and that's my main contention with both of these films. They both end very dumb. And that's just, I know, very subjective. But... Um, from no, what I know I from the actual story. I'm uh, bored with they end dumb. They both end dumb. It's it's nothing against any of these people, though, that, that tried to make something for Hollywood. I think it's Hollywood restrictions that led to the dumb. Uh, people need happy endings. Uh, people don't like the reality of situations. Um, generally, what actually happens with your creations or your children that you manufacture... Uh, with your DNA is that they go off and do their own fucking thing and you're probably not okay with it. How many of your parents are very disappointed in what you've become? I mean, it's it's just part of the reality and nobody wants to end a movie that way. Nobody well, wants to end a movie with the parents disappointed in their children. <laughs> which, by the way, I think if if we could, let's talk about the book a little bit there too because <clears throat> that's, that's why I think I'm so mad at the 31 film is because in the book, 
Frankenstein does. He suffers for his mistake, man. Like it's it's not it's not even just like making the creation that is a mistake, but the fact that he immediately is disgusted with what he's done and runs away from it. And then the monster gets out and runs away and then suffers and is lonely and alienated and then even has like a reckoning with the doctor. And then at every single point where the doctor has a chance to sort of take responsibility and make amends and do the right thing, he fails to do so. And he continues to fail to do so until he loses his friends. He loses part of his family. Like this monster is like murdering the people he knows and eventually does in fact lose his girl because Elizabeth in the book ends up being murdered by the monster. Um, And it's not until like the very end where we see Dr. Frankenstein. He's like, he's finally had enough and he's chasing after the monster to go and kill it, which by the way, is sort of giving the monster what it wants because all he really wanted was just like the the attention of his creator and then ends up in the Arctic Circle and then dies, I guess, of exhaustion or, or, or something like that. So that is, a, I think, a much better way to tell the story. I'm, I'm so pissed that it was so simplistic in the 31 version where it's just the monster dies and then everyone's fine and it kind of like ends on this happy note and they're cheersing with wine. It's like, what are, what are you doing? Seriously, this is the story you want to tell? I don't know. It's just I feel like they they got it so, so wrong. And that's, in fact, why I think that young Frankenstein didn't end quite as dumb as as you might say, because it it's so closely related. I think it's more closely related to the book than the 31 film in that regard, because the answer is, yes, you did this thing. Now it might require a little bit of a personal sacrifice. You've got to take responsibility. And like that, that seems to be in the book. That would have been Frankenstein's answer. That would have been the thing that got him out of all the trouble and the suffering is just taking responsibility for his creation. And he never did, but Frederick did. And it turned out okay. I think. I agree. I agree that that Frederick did it way better. Um, And it's just. I think that the story was meant to have a theme of almost regret. And I know we talked about this in our last uh, review of a film where we talk about regret, but um, a regret for ways that you did things. And I think that's really what the theme is, is being a parent and having regret and hoping that like somehow it can get better. It's a satire though, right? So when it's a satire, it's like, okay, this is actually how you you fix it. Dumb shit. And it's, it's hilarious. It it works as a comedy for sure. Um, But it doesn't necessarily go with the theme of regret. And should it end unhappy in a comedy? Probably not. I mean, there's definitely an argument that that would be really strange (laughs) uh, to end with it being sad. So it, it definitely subverted the story and led to more of a satire and a comedy. And like, hey, this is actually how you raise your children well, is put a part of yourself into them and actually care. You know? I think, that's, I think that's great. And in fact, I, I sort of to combine your point with Ben's point, uh, the best way to end it is having the brain-switching experiment actually switch their brains. And so that at the end of Young Frankenstein, Frankenstein is nonverbal, um, unable to uh, un- unable to, to articulate and unable to move as well as he can. And then Peter Boyle is the one who gives the moving monologue. So it's and an actual he- sacrifice. Right, right. So that the experiment actually costs Frankenstein his identity and that those identities end up switching. That makes a ton of sense to me 
both thematically and I think that works as a joke either. I am, I mean, we'll talk about, uh, well, I mean, apparently I'm going to get into it very shortly, but but I, I'm uncomfortable with the ending where Gene Wilder kind of gives this look at the camera and then um, has sex with Cloris Leachman and then she sings. Uh, hearkening back to to Peter Boyle's uh, sexual experience, um, I find that to be uh, I, I find that to be too pat and too sophomoric of a joke to a film that um, deserves better. And while we're on the subject of sexuality in Young Frankenstein, this movie has a rape joke. Um, I don't uh, two rape jokes, and two... they're the same rape joke. Right. I mean, that's, I, you know, like, I know if it this... didn't work this time, maybe this time. Hoo hoo ha ha. Yeah. I mean, just to, let's let's suss out this this rape joke to to make sure that because my suspicion is, is that I say uh, this <laughs> this movie has a rape joke. And then suddenly the comments go um, before before we can even explain what the rape joke is and, and why it's a fucking rape joke. And. You know, the, we've got the uh, Madeline Kahn character. Um, she is resisting Peter Boyle's character's advances. Um, he, she says no. She's clearly not into it. Then he takes out his penis. She looks at it and stops resisting as much. And then he has sex with her. She sings. And because he is apparently good at sex, it was okay quote unquote, to rape her. And that was it, it's a it's a similar joke that they play in Blazing Saddles. They do a they do a joke uh, it, similar to this in Blazing Saddles, but with an added racial element. And it seems to me that Mel Brooks thinks that all female sexuality has to like the the only thing that you need to uh, please a woman uh, is is a a abnormally large member, and that's that's it. That's his uh, the extent of I his. I don't know if it's a dick size joke, though. I don't know if it's a dick size joke, and here's why. I think it is. Well, I, I'll I'll throw it this might, in here. It really might quick. be. Okay. It might be a dick size joke, but I I want to throw out a, a real life story of of Brooks, and this is not a story told by him. This is told by his second wife. Uh, the chick who played Mrs. Robinson uh, <laughs> in The Graduate. Uh, so the one that he was married to the longest before she died. Uh, yes, Anne Baycroft. Uh, so she was in a film, or I think she was filming something. I don't know what it was. It might have been a commercial. It might have been whatever. She was filming something. And then Mel Brooks came over and he was like, I'm Mel Brooks, and introduced himself that way to her. She didn't see what he looked like, but she imagined this like amazing Robert Redford-type character. And then when she sees who he is, his confidence may have been very large, but his, uh, you know, personage is not so large. And so she was just like, what the hell? But then she kept on going places and he'd be like, where are you going? And she'd say, I'm going here. And he's like, so am I. And he was stalking her, essentially, which she took a liking to and just kept going to different places, telling him where she would go. He'd be there and she enjoyed it. And that was their back and forth before they got married. That is their love story. Their love story is him being larger than life in his way of exuding himself and then stalking her until she gave in. And that's their love story. 
and it might be part of how he writes his stories, honestly. I, I don't know, but that's her version of events. And she thought it was very romantic. She saw it as something very sweet to talk about. So I don't know, maybe it's a very different time. I can't speak to Mrs. Robinson's kinks. Uh, apparently she likes college boys and Mel Brooks. I don't know. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll, th- I'll throw in there just like, like about the uh, the dinner scene really quick. So there is kind of like a rule of threes thing about this. So they do the the size joke three times. The two that we've already talked about, the end of the movie and then the scene with like Madeline Kahn and the monster. And then the first whenever they're talking about the proportions that they would have to have of like a body to be able to withstand the electric current. And then Inga at one point is like, wow, he, he would have to have like an enormous, you know, insert German word for penis here. And Gene Wilder's like, well, goes without saying. So I think that's uh, that's an indication of uh, exactly what kind of joke they were going for there. Right. And what I'm I, I guess what I'm arguing here is that I, I, I mean, I'm not necessarily arguing too much here. I'm saying that the film has a joke that certainly by today's standards would be inappropriate. And maybe it's it's possible that that Anne Bancroft's courtship with with Mel Brooks by today's standards um, would be inappropriate or not. I don't know. Uh, we, I'll leave that to the real SJWs to decide, not us. Um, but I would, uh, I, I, yeah, I would say, but what I am arguing here is that the portrayal of sexuality, specifically female sexuality within, uh, young Frankenstein is sophomoric and simplistic. That is the extent of what I'm what I'm saying about the film here. And I can agree right. there. Yeah, I mean that's that's the extent of of uh, of the of the argument, and I think that that's it's a legitimate thing to talk about um, when we're when we're evaluating the movie, especially considering that that's how they choose to end the movie. They choose to end the movie on another dick joke, um, which. This is a movie that deserves better than that. And if we're going to talk about how this uh, film thematically treats the creation of the creature, um, then we need to we need to talk about, you know, the ending and the final conclusion of the film. It might have worked better if he passed his large dick energy, his big dick energy onto the monster. I think it might have worked better. The fact that the big dick energy came from his son or his creation is weird. It doesn't make sense. But if he would have passed his big dick energy onto the monster, that would have been fucking hilarious to today's standards. So maybe and, it's a time frame thing, but yeah. And not only that, that would fix that would fit so much better with your with the argument that you were making earlier, that this is a, a film about father-son relationships. And uh, the idea that the son would then pass on his big dick to the father is... I don't think that's how that works. Uh, that's a little weird. Uh, and so if we're talking about thematic cohesion within this this farcical comedy, then uh, that... I think that your rewrite of the joke makes makes much more sense. And are we saying that if you have a small brain that you have 
a big dick and if you have a big brain you have a small dick i don't know if that's what's implied but that's sad i mean i think that both both movies are definitely making both movies seem to be making the argument that there is there there's a there's a a, a, in antithetical relationship that's being set up in both of these movies right where on the one hand we have frankenstein or frankenstein who is the intellect uh he is the the ego or super ego well no he would be the ego and uh you have uh the the creature or the monster uh boris karloff and peter boyle's characters who are the id uh, they are primarily sexual. Uh, they are um, primarily um, nonverbal. They're motivated by uh, very simplistic moral and and physical reasonings. And so as a result of that, I think you do have these deliberate antitheses set up, which would then argue that the uh, the intellect is incapable or or less capable, shall we say, of sexual gratification and 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 uh, less uh, in touch with sexuality, which is a problematic argument, I would say. Um, and it's not it's an argument that is foisted onto these films. It's not necessarily an argument that I think occurs in the original source material, but of course I'm of the, the books don't matter point of view. Um, so for me, it doesn't, I like it's, it's, I, I don't necessarily put it on myself to uh, criticize these, these films based upon Shelley. But if I am going to, these are, th- these are statements, the filmmakers themselves are 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 foisting onto these things, not necessarily something that's inherent in Shelley. And and I you know, I realize that I'm talking myself into lower star ratings for these films. So I would uh somebody take over and make me like these movies more. Go Ben, go Ben. Yeah, no, I don't know. Like I I think that comedy and this is something that I actually have to deal with honestly personally a lot is that comedy just doesn't seem to age well you know what I mean I mean there's even well I I mean, just like maybe maybe just film in general but yes I mean like obviously having a dick joke in a Mel Brooks film you know yes that's probably what you would expect like in a, if you've seen his other films I mean like history of the world like obviously there's similar shit in there um and Dark that's helmet. just well there you go <laughs> right right the whole thing like it's, Your it's sort of bigger than mine yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, it's sort of like inundated within a lot of his movies. And like, I mean, it's like a pretty common basic form of comedy. It's not highbrow stuff that we're dealing with here um, as far as like that's concerned. But yeah, I mean, like his his movies might be a little bit dated, you know, and like, I mean, especially if I compare this to something like, you know, the earlier Bond films, which personally, I feel like there are a lot more graphic problematic scenes as far as sexuality in those movies are concerned. Um, it seems to be like a time period sort of thing, you know? And so, yeah, yeah I mean, like some things just don't age super well. <laughs> can I, I mean, can I just say something though? I think this is a disservice against men. Can I be an MRA for a second? We'll, we'll switch from SJW to MRA. I we'll think this is a disservice acronyms. to men. Yeah. We'll be all the, all the letters. Um, I think this is a disservice to men. Uh, you can have big dick energy and be smart. Like, I don't understand this viewpoint. It's something that's foisted on women as well. Like, oh, you have the big titties and you're a Stacy. Okay, well, you're dumb. It's such a fucking dumb idea. 
to attach what you look like to what your intelligence is. Um, it's, I, I don't understand doing that to men. I don't understand doing it to women. I don't understand why that's funny. I don't understand why people think that that's a flip. I don't, it, it's a data joke, blah, blah, blah. It's still a dick joke, funny, but I don't like it. Like, I think that there are plenty of intelligent men with big dick energy. Like, you bitches exist, and I acknowledge your existence. So, <laughs> like, I don't like that Mel Brooks wants to try to imply that, you know? Right, and and I, you know, I want to be careful about... Um, you know, applying 2019 standards to a 1970s movie. I will apply it like crazy. I don't care. But you can you can do what you got to do. I mean, I want to be careful about it. I mean, I think clearly I'm the one who brought it up. So, I mean, obviously I, I, I do have concerns about these things. But, uh, I you know, we, in fairness to the film... Um, you know, I, I guess what I'm my overall point is that Young Frankenstein deserves better because it is a film with a lot of really funny moments. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a reference to a Glenn Miller band joke that that nobody gets. It's not even a it's very, very, very few people will get it. And it's a sophisticated joke and it works and i i chuckled at it after i realized what it was um it was it was an it's a nice joke i think frankenstein franken frankenstein i think that's funny i think igor igor that's a that's a clever little thing i think marty feldman is fantastic in this movie i think the 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 moment where uh, he drops the the smart guy's brain and picks up the abnormal brain, and it's clearly labeled abnormal brain. Do not use. Is hanging a lantern on like how kind of dumb it was in the thirty one version. I mean, this is clearly a movie that knows its source material and is making fun of its source material, and I really like that joke. Um, hey, so there's can a- I can I point out the source material? Uh, if since you mentioned source material, can I point out the fact that. The person who uh, kept and held on to all the objects from the 31 film, uh, Mel Brooks contacted him and was able to use all the original uh, Frankenstein uh, devices in Young Frankenstein. Those are all the same exact props from the 1931 version uh, that, that Mel Brooks was able to borrow from movie history. And so they really did know their source material in fact they used their source material literally and physically uh that is something beautiful and you know kudos to them for understanding satire needs to go to that level like take it to the highest level you can right it's it's not just silliness it's pointing out some of the problems of it right that's what that brain uh part pointed out it was like that was really stupid like like that was so dumb and that's that's hilarious that's a great joke and it's uh it's hilarious especially considering that you watch the 31 version and he takes the brain label in all brings it to frankenstein and apparently frankenstein puts this brain in this creation without reading the label on the the jar that uh that fit 
Fritz brings him. I mean, that's hilarious. That's a great joke. And, you know, you even have the Madeline Kahn appearing with the uh, Bride of Frankenstein wig and all of these things. This is a film that knows its source material. It's intelligent. It's good comedy mostly. And but then at the same time, we get some of these problematic elements that are uh, that are thrown in. And to me, it just it's it. Those those jokes speak of laziness. Those are easy jokes to make, um, and a, as a result, it's a, it it's a movie that deserves better. Um, and it's and not so wrong. It's eye roll. <laughs> it. Thank you. That's what I've been trying to say for the past fifteen minutes, and uh, you just summed it up in a single sentence. Um, there was a great theater. Um, story that was being told on stage around the time of Mary Shelley. So it's possible she could have seen this uh, performed on a stage. They took a bunch of vegetables and had them pieced together like a human body to form like a puppet and made it come to life like a human being made of vegetables performed on the stage and in a comedic way. And it is entirely possible that Mary Shelley might have seen that on top of, you know, the, the galvanism uh, stuff in the news stories that could have inspired some of her storytelling, which I think is extraordinarily interesting. It could be just her being informed about news of the day, as well as being culturally inspired by some of the uh, stuff that was being performed in her time that led to her story. But I don't know if you guys are aware of how the story was written. The Mary Shelley story was written. Um, she was in a big giant mansion house with a bunch of her friends and a dude she was into. And they got st stuck in the house during a storm. And so one of the guys that was there with her uh, was like, hey, let's, let's, you know, try to write the best scary story. Let's all go into other rooms and write scary stories and see who writes the best scary story. At least that's how the legend goes. And that's how Frankenstein got written. Now, they all had their own little versions of stories. And yes, some of those people went on to write their own famous uh, scary stories that are well known in our time. But she wrote Frankenstein during this storm uh, of being trapped in a house and bored with her friends and trying to out write them you're certainly right and this is one of as i said before one of the first science fiction stories that was that was written and and certainly within the context of the of the early 19th century female writers were not uh common um although of course we have offer ben in the restoration and we have um other uh george george Eliot later on in the 19th century and george Hassan who uh, both had to sort of take on aliases and pen names in order to uh, to get their their work published and accepted. Offer Ben, however, was was the first female writer in in the 1600s in Britain. First female writer who was able to make a living out of writing. Um, and uh, so Mary Shelley certainly has her her place within the history of women writers and certainly within the history of women science fiction writers she is uh i you know i i struggled to find a 
uh, 19th century female writer who's been as influential as Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Um, and, and she's, in fact, more well-known than her husband, Percy Shelley, uh, who's, who's sort of a second-rate poet, um, in, in my view. But, uh, yeah, and, and it's even interesting to note that in the 1931 version, she is credited as being Mrs. Percy B. Shelley, uh, based upon the novel by Mrs. Percy B. Shelley, rather than based upon the novel by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Um, it isn't until, uh, the, uh, the Kenneth Branagh version in the 90s when it becomes Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in the title. And, of course, any film that, uh, that has the author's name in the title is um, the film that diverges most from the actual source material because <laughs> that movie is not the book. Um, I, and, and while we're speaking of adaptations and, and other versions of this, I want to throw a quick shout-out to... The Danny Boyle, uh, this is a stage play that was uh, filmed, and it's a Danny Boyle-directed production starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller, and it is astounding. And one of the, um, the, one of the most important things that this stage production does is restore the voice to the creature. And in both of the films that we're analyzing today... Uh, the the quote unquote creature has no voice. The Boris Karloff uh, version simply speaks in in M's, and the Peter Boyle version largely speaks in M's. M's. Um, what like I guess the, the one of the questions that occurred to uh, our erstwhile and and absent co-host pour pour some out for our our friend Noah um one of the questions that he sent in in our group chat um before before we analyzed this film was if the monster could or the if the creature could speak what would he say and I thought that was a fascinating question um especially when we're analyzing the Karloff version that I think um strips the the creature even more of its agency than the uh, the young Frankenstein version. But what do you guys think about that? I would just like to throw out there, and I, I will send this over to you, Ben, for sure, because I think you'll have a lot more insight, honestly. But I just want to throw this out there, that there are other ways of communicating than with words. And in both of the films, he communicates with way more than words. When he's talking to the blind man and to the child, uh, it is very obvious that he cares about people, it's very obvious that he cares for the finer things. It's very obvious that he wants to do what's right. He just doesn't know how to. And um, I think he communicates it very well. Now, it may not be accurate to the book or how the story was supposed to be told, but in both of the movies, I think that it's very obvious that he's a compassionate and loving person. It's seen as wrong. So, for instance, in the 31 version, when he's with the child, he falls in love. And not in a creepy pedophile way. He falls in love with childhood innocence, with flowers, with gifts, with the beauty of the world and humanity. And you can tell that. He just doesn't understand it and something accidentally happens and they perceive it incorrectly. Um, and... When he's with the blind man, the blind man 
introduces him to the finer things in life and teaches him not to be so afraid of some of the things he's afraid of um because he's a wise man he's he's the guy who's taking him on the journey that his father or god should have taken him through and in a way it's admonishing god it's admonishing father sometimes there's wiser people that you run into that teach you the better things and those two characters are the most imperative and important of the story the blind man and the girl are who raise this poor creature it is not frankenstein who raises him it is the elderly and the childlike innocence and that is what real good storytelling tells us every time if we have wisdom and if we have love we become better humans and that's why it's such a great story for me um, I would like to hear what Ben has to say, though. That's just my interpretation of those that raise the creature but um, and how he communicates. But I, I don't know what Ben's going to say. So now I'm like almost worried. <laughs> no, no, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I definitely see that. And one of the things I thought about as I was watching this, the 1931 version is how similar I it, it, the monster, the creature seemed to be to. Um, I forget the name, but I, we've all seen it of Mice and Men, right? So it's like we have this Lenny. character that's Lenny, yeah, where I mean, we have this character who is very large and probably too strong for his own good and very simple and very innocent and can't help but accidentally, you know, hurting people sometimes. And because of that, you know, eventually the people that are around seeing this happening come after him and, and have to try and kill him. And then his friend, you know, puts him sort of out of his misery because he he should be the one to do it. You know, he doesn't want these these cruel sort of mob mentality, you know, whatever coming after him and putting him through all this like pain and, you know, whatever. He just kind of wants it to be quick and and, and this this creature's eventual suffering. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I saw that as being very, very similar. You know, there's there's this idea that there is this power in this body, but it is led by, you know, a mind that just isn't. 100% completely fully developed, which of course speaks to a childlike innocence, but also, you know, the sort of like fearful reactions and a misunderstanding of the world and, you know, trying to control things in ways that end up just doing more harm than good. Um, but honestly, like as far as the uh, the 1931 Frankenstein, I think like Karloff's, um, Karloff's performance is probably my favorite part of this entire story. Like obviously I have some issues with like the thematic elements and stuff and especially compared to the original work, I think the book was much better in, in telling the, the important story that we have there. Um, but yeah, I mean as far as like the communication style of Karloff and portraying this monster is fantastic because in many ways he, he really doesn't even – seem to need words you know there are a couple of scenes in here where you you look into the expression that he's making and how he's outstretching his hands um you know particularly and, and noah um pointed this out as well there's one scene where he's sitting in a chair and he's sort of like looking up and and reaching you know reaching for this this beam of light and it's so incredibly telling of the monster's psychology but also kind of like thematic of you know the search for meaning and like looking for guidance and and almost like maybe necessarily a, a metaphor for divine absence in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I just think it's, that's a really interesting point, Ben. I hadn't thought of that before. Um, so 
can you can you kind of explore that a little bit more this idea of the monster and a theme of divine absence in the 1931 version because i i've always read the 31 version as being uh there is a god god has certain limits frankenstein uh he went beyond those limits and so as a result of that the product of him going beyond those limits must be destroyed. And so I, I like, I've never really thought of the film as, as having a, uh, a theme of divine absence yet. What you talked about right then uh, with that, that particular shot. And I remember that shot very well, but that, that makes a ton of sense to me. So can, can you, I, you, you understand why I'm a little confused and, why I also am very interested in what you're saying. Yeah, sure. Um, I I see how the movie could be read in the way that you're talking about. Like, obviously, we have Henry Frankenstein there acting as sort of like the God, the father, the creator, um, bringing the monster into the world and sort of having its own failings. I, I think if, if anything, like you could definitely see this as sort of sort of Nietzschean in a lot of ways, obviously, as, as seemingly like every horror film is just Nietzschean. So, I mean, we might as well just go ahead and say that. But but in this one in particular, because, you know, he he is sort of let down, I think, by the the ability as a Frankenstein, because Frankenstein can't rise up to that level. He sees himself as a god. But I, I really don't think that obviously he's meant to be taken that way as an audience. Like we see that his, his folly and, and, and those statements, I mean, he it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And that's why he eventually fails because he tries to take on that role and fails. You, you could almost see him as like a failed God. Um, so I don't think he's necessarily necessarily supposed to fill that role in a literal sense. It's just that he sees himself that way. Um, and just simply cannot rise to the task. So if you want to think about it that way, yes, there is sort of like a, a divine absence because of, of Frankenstein's own sort of like folly, but also because in, in a lot of ways, I think the monster is is meant to be perceived as sort of like more human or more basically human than than Frankenstein, because yeah. while Frankenstein is supposed to be trying to transcend and and reach past what he actually is and sort of deny that that human identity the monster is is portrayed especially in the early parts of of his his life and his time on screen is is sort of lost he, you know he's seeking he's looking he's outstretching he's you he's waiting to be to be given sort of like this sense of identity and this guidance and he's looking for it and it never happens like it's never given to him he's simply lost in sort of the wilderness and and left to be eaten alive by the wolves and in, in, in a sense, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, he's there, he's looking for help. He's looking for answers and none come. There's only, there's only suffering to be found and misunderstanding and alienation and loneliness. And so, I mean, I, I think that if you sort of, if you break that down to its elements and sort of compare that to the search for meaning that we all have, I, you know, I think that's, that's absolutely apropos. I mean, we, we, we look out, um, into the void or into the sky, like looking for something to fill that sense of meaning within us, that God hole, if you will, <laughs> that we talk about in, in a lot of different movies and no answers come. Um, you know, and obviously it's a common theme among theology that, you know, whenever we're at our deepest and our darkest moments, um, you know, we look out and we, we look for those answers. And again, like no answers come, you know, you, no matter how faithful you are, horrible things continue to happen. And nothing seems to stop and intervene in that. So, you know, as a microcosm, I think that that's an absolutely great way to sort of portray that. We see that we see all of that meaning 
with the couple of seconds where we look at Boris Karlov's face and the the eventual sort of like outcome of that is that well he's he's sort of left to fend for himself and uh killed <laughs> you know right right there, there is yeah, no salvation I, essentially yeah i think i i was sort of trying to square your your reading and your interpretation with my own and i think i was able to to do it based upon uh, all the things you're saying you know uh Man cannot be God. Man tries to be God. Man fails at being God. The creation um, looks to man to to fulfill the uh, the needs that God supposedly gives. Man being unable to be God is unable to fulfill those needs. Therefore, creature must be killed. Um, I, that makes a ton of sense to me within the context of, of both the traditional interpretation of, uh, of the Frankenstein story and what we're deliberately told this movie is about in the very, in, when the guy walks up on, on stage and says, this is what the movie's about. And okay. Uh, now I don't need to watch your movie, but thank you. Yeah. I mean, he's like, leave now. Okay, I guess you're going to stay. Yeah, I, what the fuck did you think I came here for? Or like, what are you talking yeah. about, bro? I've warned you. Ooh. It's, uh, well, that, it's probably a product makes, of its time. I don't know. <laughs> and that makes a ton of sense within the context of the where we were in, in 1931 as it related to cinema. And... Uh, in the early days of cinema, they just placed the camera on a tripod and they had all of the action occur right in front of you. So the, the basic idea of cinematography in the very, very early days of filmmaking was we are going to take you to a play and we are going to give you the front row seat to a play. And so all of the cinematography was essentially what would you what would you see if you were uh, on the front row seat of 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 a play of a stage production um those traditions and and that basic thought process as it related to early cinematography continued up until the mid 30s in in some cases it, it wasn't until uh i mean we had innovations in uh, cinematography where we started to invent the close-up and invent um, other uh, behaviors or other cinematography uh, other cinematog film cin language film let's, language thank you very much yeah. film language. oddly enough D.W. Griffith was one of the early uh, innovators as it related to um, understanding film language and but what we see at the very beginning of the 31 version is what stuck around from the idea that you are going to sit in the first row of a play. And so when the guy walks out and introduces the play, um, it is not it's that's basic. That's that's basic film language for 1931 for that time. But what's fun is, uh, you know, when you look at Young Frankenstein, this is why I really jumped at the chance to talk about 31 Frankenstein with young Frankenstein. And that's why when Ben mentioned this, I was like, yes, let's do it now. It's the uh, tap dancing number. Okay. Like 
motherfuckers can we talk about the tap dancing number um so putting on the ritz uh is tapping into that part that element of the old school the play is a movie the movie is a play you're at the front row and uh it, it's it's taking that old school view of film going and taking it to a hilarious height right vaudeville um <laughs> vaudeville exactly it's it's beautiful and um it, and the fact that brooks fought for it to be in black and white first of all huge 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 got it in black and white perfect now we have a theater stage number as part of the gags of frankenstein oh okay so i don't know if you guys know this backstory if you do already i'm sorry you've already heard it um but wilder loved that putting on the ritz number he thought it was amazing he thought it was hilarious as all holy hell now there are about three-fourths of the gags that got removed from the film brooks cut so much he put all the gags out to audiences they weren't laughing hard enough he cut them he goes to wilder about the putting on the ritz and <laughs> frankenstein be like <laughs> making little grunting noises which totally makes fun of the hmm i can't uh you know make any vocalizations he's singing and performing his grunts hilarious fucking putting on the black and white theater stage shit and brooks goes to wilder and says we're cutting it and wilder goes to tears and rage and starts breaking stuff and throwing a fit over the fact that he's going to cut the putting on the Ritz number. And then Brooks goes, well, I just wanted to make sure that you stood behind uh, the number. So we're definitely keeping it. We were going to keep it anyway, but I, I just want to make sure you, you actually stood behind and he was fucking with him and manipulating him psychologically. Brooks is a really messed up person, by the way, he does this kind of stuff all the time. If you look into his uh, way of doing things, it's, 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 quite messed up he's totally uh he's he's totally messed up on how he forces things to happen but also messes with your mind and he did that to wilder and wilder was wilder was like what the hell is wrong with you bro but at the same time he knew that he stood by that number and it is one of the main parts of young frankenstein like a lot of people stand by it now so i don't know is is Brooks an asshole? Is he a monster too? Is 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 he is he Frankenstein himself? I don't fucking know, but that story is inception to me. Yeah, I mean that makes it's it's a funny bit and I think it works very well. I'm I'm happy that it stayed in the movie, especially because I think it underscores uh the creature's uh nonverbal uh aspects. In and in the captions at least, it says uh Every time it goes to uh, Peter Boyle's line, it's uh, on the Ritz. And so that the actual word Ritz is the only one that he's able to say, which I think is very funny. That's a great gag. And uh, as you know, I, you know, it seems like I'm shitting on young Frankenstein a lot, but there are things about this film that I, I genuinely enjoy. 
Yeah, no, this the the dance scene in this is absolutely phenomenal. It's like one of the funniest things I, I think, honestly, in the entire movie. Um, and this actually kind of goes back to the the nonverbal stuff that we were talking about earlier. Because yes, I mean, like the the funny part of this, I guess, like the gag is that you know he's trying to sing this song and can't get the words right. But there's also like these these funny facial reactions that he does. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking about like when Gene Wilder does the the you know the little the little nudge like that, and he's just like. So, I mean, he's like completely expressive in his face in sort of like a normal, genuine way. And that sort of like, I think, cuts through the whole monster part a little bit. I don't know. It's just it's just funny. Like the whole thing is absolutely hilarious to me. Um, I do want to uh, I think let's go ahead and start angling this toward closing thoughts, though. Uh, but before we do that, um, is there anything else that we want to cover? Any other like main themes or ideas before we start jumping into the ratings? I just want to throw out there that. Young Frankenstein had a way better soundtrack than 31. End of story. Uh, well, anytime you have putting on the Ritz in your soundtrack, you're uh, you're doing well. Yeah, I mean, I one other thing that I wanted to talk about, and we probably should have talked about this when we were talking about the uh, the science, the these films' relationship to science, and that is these films' relationship and this story's relationship to the Enlightenment and. The idea that this is almost a modern or postmodern film or modern or postmodern story even before modernism or postmodernism became a thing in its uh, discussions about the in its warnings about science and even in its placing of the characters as um foremost like even in its creation of the creature as a sympathetic character i think it's drawing our attention to a modern or postmodern idea and that is that science cannot solve anything everything science cannot solve everything and that it is individual human agency uh where many of us should should uh should pay what many of us should pay attention to and I think that's a brilliant understand, like a, a really forward thinking idea by Mary Shelley. And it's not, it, it's slightly carried through in the film versions, but uh, it, it is kind of interesting that this is a post enlightenment film or post enlightenment story, uh, rather, post enlightenment book even during the enlightened the enlightenment and and i find that to be a a, uh, an interesting aspect of this but uh so you're saying that frankenstein is a meme (laughs) (laughs) well it's not really a meme it's just it is it's a fucking meme and it has spread and that's why there's so many different movies of it i I, i'm just i'm not trying to speak for you i'm just seeing where i go with it (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, I, what I'm arguing is that the Enlightenment was about taxonomies. It was about science. It was about the search for truth and the search for meaning. And in a sympathetic portrayal of the creature, it places the locus of that meaning on individual expression. And that is an interesting and forward-thinking idea in in the time when this book was written and that's that's the only point that i'm making that you're i you're describing find, memes to me still that's so. not, <laughs> memes are, memes I'm just are entirely postmodern like that is the 
the memes are the reappropriation of previous uh previous rhetoric uh rhetorical items in a new rhetorical concept or new in rhetorical rhetorical situation that is that is entirely postmodern um but yeah i mean maybe it's just a meme you're right <laughs> uh do you want to go ahead and give your uh final thoughts first Sarah? oh i would like to know what are we doing am i rating both movies like what is what yeah. is our yeah, we're doing both movies. Both movies are going on the spreadsheet. Both movies oh, are going in the contest. Holy shit, we're putting wouldn't a comedy on the did. spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be great if Young Frankenstein wins the tournament? <gasps> oh, this is so hard. Do it for okay. the meme, guys. <laughs> a meme within a meme. So therefore, Shia LaBeouf. Um, exactly. Oh, God. Okay, I'll go first. Um, I'll go second. Frankenstein 31 is a film that has always spoke to me, especially the interaction that the creature has with the blind man and the child, as well as trying to figure out its place in the world. This is something that anyone could relate to, feeling like a monster. Um, there are tons of people out there in this world today that feel like they are a monster. There are people that say they relate to Shrek um, and they feel like monsters themselves. Uh, the thing is, when we talk about that, we feel like it's better that we just die. And 31 Frankenstein kind of gives you that mentality that if you are this kind of monster, even though you may have compassion, even though you have the ability to have wisdom, you should probably just die. That is a horrible message. And that's sad. Um, I don't agree with that message at all. In any way, shape, or form. Um, and in that way, it's very dated. Um, and it doesn't actually equate with what the, the original story ever said anyway. Um, but it is a product of its time. And I think is a product of toxic masculinity. And is a sad, sad state of affairs that has been pushed onto us even in our modern day. And it it makes me sad. I wish that people didn't feel so alone and so sad. And I wish people could understand that there are plenty of people out there that will be there for them and that will care for them and that will listen to them and that will hear them out. So, I almost feel like 31 Frankenstein is a suicidal tale. And it, it, it brings immense sadness and horror. Um, and I hope that anybody who's watching this that is feeling sad and lonely in that way will reach out to us. And um, I, I hope that you know that you're not alone. And that you're not a monster. And that even Shrek and even Frankenstein had people that cared about him and liked him and wanted to give him flowers or give him food or cigars or, you know, be there for him. So you're not alone. So please reach out to people. Um, 
but I do like the I do like the film in some ways in that it it did definitely bring sci-fi and uh, monster movie madness to the forefront. There's so much to be said about what it brought to us. So I have to give it a higher rating just because of what it did for cinema and storytelling, even though it may have gone against the actual book story and even possibly perpetuated some negative ideas about, oh, if your monsters die, um, as far as a film, I have to give it a four out of five. Now, with Young Frankenstein, um, I absolutely enjoy the satire. Walk This Way inspired some Aerosmith songs. Um, we have uh, these these crazy wild antics that are acted out that even when they were filming it, they couldn't stop laughing. Like, it took multiple shots to get through the the comedy. It, it's It's absolute comedy gold. But moving past that, there are themes about fatherhood, about responsibility, about um, trying to integrate yourself into society and trying to do what's right for yourself to become a responsible human being that functions in the world. And this is something that could easily be attached to anybody that is uh, having a hard time and struggling in social interaction. Once again, we're going to social interactions again. Yay, fun. But I feel like that's what the Frankenstein story is, is really trying to talk about. What makes us human? How do we connect with others? How do we get along? And how do we move forward? And I think Young Frankenstein does this very well, while satirizing some of the really stupid elements of 31. <laughs> like, it really fucks up 31 in a way that's hilarious. Like, the brain, uh, picking the abnormal brain and, and uh, just... I think the other aspect is this god-like mentality that this supposed scientist had. But it's like, no, really, you're broken too. You need love too. You need this interaction too. We're really not all alone. We all need connection. We all need human interaction. So I don't know. There, there was something to Young Frankenstein that added to it. And actually, from most people I've talked to, they've never seen the 31. They've only seen Young Frankenstein. And it spoke to them and their loneliness and their sadness and their inability to to connect with people and I feel like the satire of that story still let those elements and those themes come out to help people understand that you're interconnected we're all here for each other so I almost feel like Young Frankenstein wins over 31 so I give it a 4.5 out of 5 and I'll let you guys continue right so I yeah I mean I think some of those themes are are important um but I I I've got to go a little bit lower than uh than you on this one Shara because uh <laughs> which is rather on brand for me I think um the uh we've got Frankenstein 31 which um I'm going to first talk about some of its technical elements which I think are quite good I think Boris Karloff's performance is 
fantastic for the time. The cinematography is is also quite good. It's special effects. I mean, of course, you know, who needs what scientist needs that many Tesla coils? Uh, but uh, nevertheless, there's there's some good production design, good cinematography. I think there are some classic scenes and classic performances, especially by Boris Karloff. Let me sort of go back to that. I mean, that's what I opened with and then veered on this cinematography bit. But Boris Karloff is the highlight of this movie. And it's a uh, a, a renowned performance for very good reason. He does such good body work um, and really like a, an incredibly expressive face as we've as Ben has alluded to in some of his thoughts throughout this podcast. So on the and it, it's is as though he is able to convey the entire world of a character that is at war with himself in just his face and just his eyes. And in addition to this body work that he was able to, um, it, it seems as though his inability to move is a, a, handicap that is foisted upon him and through his eyes you can tell his own frustration with his own body and his own ability to express himself i think that this performance is nuanced and and incredible for uh the for the time and as a result of that and only as a result of that i'm giving the film three stars and it's basically based upon Boris Karloff's performance and the influence of it now I think it's dated I think it's anti-science I think there are a lot of I think it's ending is dumb I think it doesn't necessarily I don't I don't think that uh Frankenstein's character Dr. Frankenstein's character is adequately like that character journey isn't adequately explored um and so I essentially recommend it for film historians and film completionists more than I recommend it for a general audience, even though I like Boris Karloff's performance. Young Frankenstein was a film that I remembered very, very well. Um, and on the rewatch, I was, it, it wasn't as good as I remembered it to be. Some of that has to do with sort of 2019 sensibilities, as I made clear earlier. And some of it has to do with the fact that the jokes didn't work as well on me. Uh, and that may be because I remember the jokes and so I didn't laugh now. Um, I think Ben alluded to this uh, as well earlier that I maybe I'm alone in this. But for me, comedy has less rewatchability than drama. I think I might be the only film critic for whom that is true. Most people say, oh, yeah, comedies are infinitely rewatchable, whereas dramas are not. I, I'm the opposite. And I, I don't I think that has a lot to do with the fact that um, my emotional response to comedy is in the moment. It's the shock of the joke. And that would make that that would that's what makes me laugh. Whereas drama, I feel that like I can get a little bit more in depth with with rewatches. Um, 
So I I was a little bit disappointed on this time around. That said, the putting on the Ritz bit was great. It's it's taking the piss out of 31 Frankenstein, I think is hilarious. Um, I think there's a lot of really good stuff here. I think Marty Feldman steals the show. He is the funniest bit about this movie. Um, Gene Wilder's screaming doesn't always work for me, but when it does, it really does. He's he's also quite good in this movie. Um, I think some of it, uh, some of the Peter Boyle bits work very well. Uh, Ben, you talked about his, uh, his reaction to the putting on the Ritz bit where he gets punched in the face and he has this little reaction. I also think he's hilarious when he gives his final monologue. So, um, originally I remember young Frankenstein as a four out of five on the rewatch. I have to give it a three out of five. Um, unfortunately, but a lot of that ha- is the strength of the performances and, and the strength of, of Mel Brooks. So, uh, with that, with my double threes, I'm going to throw it to you, Ben. What do you think? Wait, can I say one more thing before you talk, Ben? Go for it. I just wanted to point out that Gene Hackman, uh, used to play tennis with Gene Wilder. And that's why Gene Hackman ended up in the uh, Young Frankenstein film. He said, I really would like to try comedy and ended up being the blind man in the Young Frankenstein film. And um, you'll notice there's this weird cut. And if we're going to talk about Noah's weird cuts, there's this weird cut when Gene Hackman says, I was going to make espresso. And then it cuts almost immediately. That's because... That was Gene Hackman flying off the cuff and everyone on set rip roared into laughter. So they had to cut at a weird point because that's where he nailed that joke. And there was a lot of improv in Young Frankenstein that just really went well. So um, I don't know. There's something fluid and beautiful about Young Frankenstein for me and even the drama actors could come into this and be like, bitch, I'm going to be funnier than all of you. So <laughs> here it is. And it, it, there's something like diva in Gene Hackman's performance, right? So um, I wanted to throw that out there. Uh, sorry, Ben. No, you're good. That's hilarious. Um, I think I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm honestly going to be pretty in line with, I, I think, everyone else here. Um so for the 31 Frankenstein, I think the one thing that I haven't really talked about yet that I felt like was a, a huge theme and a huge idea was this whole nature versus nurture thing. And, um, you know, I do think that was also like really big in the uh, the book, except obviously we don't have this, this sort of <laughs> um, contrived scene where you go to a, a medical college that happens to be having a lecture one day with two very specific jars on a table where you're comparing normal versus abnormal and you accidentally on purpose sort of end up choosing the abnormal brain no i mean like the experiment turns out well and we have this sort of like articulate rational functioning fully formed person in this monstrous body so i think in that one it's it's 100 on the nurture side whereas in the 31 frankenstein i mean it's it sort of leans a little bit too heavily i think on the nature because we have that that thing with the brain and i honestly i think that's a huge disservice so um because of that like yeah i, I really see once again like there's there are some huge sort of problems with 
the themes that they choose to highlight from the book and how they show those. It, it's really honestly, it's it's a film that's just absolutely ripe for a subversion. So, you know, I really do see how this is absolutely iconic. Um, I get that it is a major sort of milestone in horror film and and, and uh, science fiction. And obviously, like as Jim has said, I 100% agree that that Karloff is is really just sort of like the shining point of this this entire film. Like his his performance is amazing. Everyone else is fine. Um, the ending is is pretty weak. I think like thematically, I don't appreciate the the whole like the kind of like the anti science thing. And I, honestly, like the the most interesting thing about it really is just like that that sort of like that search for meaning and you know, the influences around us that make us who we are. Um, but I really do think that honestly, if you sort of extrapolate from that, you can kind of get the idea that, you know, if you drop this sort of, no, it's because you have an abnormal brain and that's why you're bad. And you sort of like deserve to be treated like this and you're genuinely a monster. It's, it's not so much that as I think if we, if we really sort of changed that film to be more like the book, we would have a really cool story where everyone around us, that the act of creation almost becomes sort of like, um, iterative and recursive and we're sort of like always helping each other create ourselves every day you know what i mean like there's this really interesting thing where we could really get in there where you know it's not it's not a, a reaching out to divinity and we're not sort of like receiving fire and light and knowledge from the gods it's that it exists within us already and we have the power to change each other and influence each other by just who we are, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential in this story. Um, and I think especially even from the book, like if you get into the themes about moral responsibility and learning how to use the power that we have in the correct way, um, it, it has a huge amount of potential. I love the idea in the book. I just, I'm really super disappointed with what they turned that into in the 31 film. Although I think it is, it is super interesting for a lot of reasons, but again, absolutely ripe for subversion. And I think not only is, um, Young Frankenstein, one of the most hilarious films that I think like it's it's one of the earliest comedy films that I remember really enjoying. You know what I mean? I saw this when I was younger um, and everything from, yes, like the dance number to, you know, a lot of the jokes that they make about just like just like language and puns, the Igor Igor thing, of course the freshly dead brain where he, he like, he's like, they have this progression of faces that are, you know, it's like five years dead, one year dead, four months. And then like freshly and it's him's just like there. Like that's, it's freaking hilarious. You're like, whenever we have Inga and Franken Frankenstein, like sleeping together for the first time, they do that at the top of the lab where, you know, he, this, this can, contraption that he's made to play God and like he has the power of God in his hands when he's able to take this energy and this light and bring something to life he's also using this to go and have sex you know what I mean like what what more stereotypically male thing could there be than elevating yourself to the level of a God when you're having sex with a beautiful woman I just I don't know man like there, there's a lot of layers to the comedy here and just regenerate and like, even, like, life and chill boom, <laughs> exactly there you go they're creating life they are creating life um, and even just like to go a little bit farther on the brain thing, like I, it's like when, whenever you consider that they turn this university and like this, this contrivance into literally the Transylvania brain depository, like they have, I don't know, whatever. I mean, it's like there, there are a million different funny things about this movie, but also it does such a good job if you've actually seen the source material of pointing out like the weird little flaws in it and like making the story better, I think by adding this additional layer of saying, no, you know. We, we can take responsibility for our creations and the effect that we have on others. And we can take responsibility for the consequences of our actions and make personal sacrifices to make those 
make the outcomes of the things that we do better. Like we can, we can take this power of creation. We can take this power of science. We can, we can have that, that power exists within us and we can use it to positive effect as long as we're morally responsible agents. You know, I, I really think like that's the, that's the, the underlying sort of message. If I, I don't necessarily know if Gene Wilder or Mel Brooks really intended that, but intentionally or not, I, I think in conjunction with a 31 Frankenstein, it just tells a much better, more complete story. That That's really what it is. It's almost like completing the story that we started in 31's Frankenstein. Now, as far as the scores go, um, you know, again, like a lot of the a lot of the scoring for me as well for Frankenstein 31 is carried on the back of that that absolutely stunning stellar performance by Karloff. Um, and I think that I'm, I'm, I'm going to rate it a little bit higher than Jim. I think I'm going to give it a 3.5 because it is absolutely a recommend. But probably just, again, like for more historical, I mean, it's, you know, if if you're really interested in the story of Frankenstein, go read the book. Just just read Mary Shelley's book. You know what I mean? I, I, I think I would recommend that more heavily than the 31 version of Frankenstein, the movie, um, unless you're like a cinema, a cinemaphile, a cinephile, <laughs> unless you're a person who really loves old movies and like really digging into film history, then absolutely go watch it. Or if you just really like horror and you kind of want to understand where the horror genre evolved from, absolutely go see it. Um, but the story itself has some, some, some pitfalls that I think I can't necessarily 100% forget before young Frankenstein again, like this is also a little bit problematic from some of the discussion that we've had already, but if, if it's taken with gun within context and taken with a huge boulder of salt with, with some of the dated humor, I think, you know, as, as a foil for the original Frankenstein story and making that story more complete and just because of the merits of the comedy that really does still work in that film, I want to give that a four out of five. So a little bit higher than the original Frankenstein, but I think both movies are absolutely interesting. The young Frankenstein version might just be a little bit better. So there you have it. Uh, Mel Brooks wins the day in the uh, the adaptation of Mary Shelley's book. Young Frankenstein gets uh, 4.5, 4, and 3. And uh, the 31 Frankenstein gets 4, 3.5, and 3 from, from us. What did you think? Let us know in the comments below. Um, as always, be nice to each other and us. And uh, join us next week. Uh, we are doing Come and See, a 1985 war movie, war horror film. Uh, we hope that you will come join us for that. And if you like what we did today, then please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and uh, drop any uh, any comments in the comments below. Join us next week again for Come and See. And uh, on Wednesday, we will have a review, or at least I will have a review, a two-minute review of the newest horror entry uh, that is rocking the box office right now, ready or not. So be sure to check back then. Thank you again. Have a good night.